the Iraq war, we are still hearing from the same voices. They are still the voices that are taking up the airtime, that we're still hearing from those same people who said something wrong and then walked it back, who said something and then lied. It's really hard to get your driver's license, adopt a pet, or get a credit card. But if you're 18 and you want to go out and buy an AR-15 in too many states, that's no problem. Go to a gun show in about 32 states, and you can have one in about one hour. We can't even buy a beer until we're 21. That makes no sense. These semi-automatic weapons were designed for war, not to hunt or shoot clays. They aren't cool toys. They're designed to people. And the establishment media, instead of like trying to figure out how the hell did Donald Trump win? How the hell have the Democrats wiped out at every level of government? They're not doing that. What are they doing? They're talking about Russia nonstop. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance and alternative news from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and on today's show, truth and lies in the news. I've been looking into this trendy term, gaslighting. Now, Wikipedia, which is not recommended as a primary research source, but which does keep up with such language trends, defines gaslighting as a form of manipulation a form of manipulation that seeks to sow seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or in members of a targeted group, hoping to make them question their own memory, perception, and sanity. So this idea of gaslighting, which attempts to make the truth a lie and makes lies the truth, gives me a new term to use instead of Orwellian, which I've been told is overused in the United States, especially since September 11th, 2001. Well, this week's news is full of what would make us question our memory, perception, and sanity. Are we supposed to perceive that it is normal, three and a half years after Ferguson, for the unarmed father of two, Stephen Clark, to be shot to death by Sacramento police? Should it be perceived as normal for no charges to be filed in the gruesome police shooting of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana? Or for high school survivors of the Florida mass shooting to be targeted for harassment and taunting by Laura Ingram of Fox News? Or just like in the run-up to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, major diplomatic moves are being taken against the Russian government with no proof produced of wrongdoing in the U.S. or the U.K. Or sadly, it has become normal for news organizations to be once again the same stenographers for official lies as they were in the run-up to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, to now vilify not only the government in Russia, but in Iran, Venezuela, Syria, and North Korea. So as always, we have a lot packed in today's show on these issues and more. I'll be speaking with media critic Janine Jackson and with our geopolitical analyst, Gerald Horn. But first, our headlines. At least a dozen states signaled this week that they will sue the Trump administration to block it from adding a question about citizenship to the 2020 census. 
arguing that the change will discourage participation in the census by immigrants and violate the constitutional mandate to count every person living in the United States. Mother Jones reporter Ari Berman spoke to the online show The Majority Report about the change. This question about citizenship has not been asked by the census since 1950. So it hasn't been asked for basically 70 years. And it's never been asked when we've had such an anti-immigrant president like Donald Trump. New York State Attorney General Eric T. Schneiderman is leading a multi-state lawsuit to stop the change in the census, which determines political boundaries and how hundreds of billions of dollars in federal grants are spent. The consumer advocacy organization Public Citizen also filed a lawsuit this week against the Department of Education, saying that the department has refused to adequately search for records related to the Teacher Education Assistance for College and Higher Education Grant Program, or the TEACH program, which may provide students pursuing teaching degrees with up to $4,000 a year. Grant recipients agree to teach for four years following their graduation in high-need fields and serve in low-income schools and districts. If they do not fulfill the service requirements, their grants are converted into federal student loans. Julie Murray, an attorney for Public Citizen, told on the ground that the Education Department and its contractors have likely converted erroneously thousands of grants into high-interest loans impacting teachers across the country, and the Department of Education has refused to hand over documents regarding its management of the contractors. Once a teacher's grant is converted into a loan, it is difficult to correct the problem. One Maryland teacher, for example, Megan Gamble, whose grant was wrongfully converted into a loan by the company Fed Loan in 2015, documented more than a year of interactions with at least 24 Fed Loan representatives as she attempted to have her loan reconverted to a grant. During the dispute process, Gamma was required to begin paying the loan, which appeared on her credit report, and it had a high interest rate and required monthly payments. In November 2016, 15 months after the erroneous conversion, the Education Department and Fed Loan acknowledged that the conversion had been in error and reinstated the grant. Gamo then had to fight to be reimbursed for the money she had paid toward the wrongful loan. This is Julie Murray of Public Citizen. Teachers work hard in the classroom. They should not have to work hard to, to fix mistakes that should never have been made. And that, you know, quite frankly, the Department of Education has been on notice of for years. It's had more than enough time to correct these problems. Our hope is that by forcing them to at least turn over some of these records, it will give the public a clearer view just how much they have known about the scope of these problems and how much effort they have put forward to try to make sure that people who have been caught up with erroneous conversions you know, are able to, to fix those through an appeal process that the department, at least publicly, has never explained. Murray added that a separate class action suit has been brought on behalf of teachers against FedLoan, which services the TEACH grant program, and that the Attorney General of Massachusetts has also filed a lawsuit against FedLoan. And our final lawsuit story, this week a federal judge in Maryland ruled that a case alleging that President Donald Trump has violated constitutional law by profiting from his Washington, D.C. hotel, will be allowed to proceed. 
the attorneys general of Washington, D.C. and Maryland, allege that Trump is in violation of the Constitution's emoluments clauses, which bar the president from receiving gifts from foreign or state governments by continuing to benefit from the business of the Trump International Hotel. And finally, in environment and climate news, individuals, businesses, and organizations in dozens of countries joined in the Earth Hour project on March 24th by switching off their lights and engaging in other acts of eco-solidarity and education. Marco Labertini, Director General of the World Wildlife Foundation, said, quote, People are demanding commitment now on halting climate change and the loss of nature. The stakes are high and we need urgent action to protect the health of the planet for a safe future for us and all life on Earth. End quote. According to the fund, people participated in Earth Hour from all over the world, from Colombia to Indonesia to Fiji. In Africa, 24 countries celebrated Earth Hour to highlight the most pressing conservation challenges they face, such as access to renewable energy, fresh water resources, and habitat degradation. Lights were turned out at nearly 18,000 landmarks, including the Sydney Opera House in Sydney, Australia, Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament in London, the Tokyo Sky Tree, Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro, and the Eiffel Tower in Paris. In D.C., non-essential lights were scheduled to be turned off at the Washington National Cathedral. People around the world contributed to a video for Earth Hour. I want to protect the ocean. The forest. The rivers. It's difficult to get people to understand that the things we find convenient have an impact on the natural environment. When I look at my children, I always think that I should try to create a better future for them. If I don't do it, then nobody else will. Governments and businesses must step up. So must individuals. Building a sustainable tomorrow depends today on all of us. Earth Hour brings together people, communities and organizations to drive real positive change. We all know that reversing the course of climate change will not be easy, but the tools are in our hands if we apply them before it is too late. This year's Earth Hour came a day after the release of a report by the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity on the dangerous decline in biodiversity. Researchers detailed grave threats to coral reefs and warned of the dangers of overfishing and unsustainable agricultural and forestry practices. Earth Hour 2019 will take place on Saturday, March 30th at 8.30 p.m. at local times across the globe. Now, for more international news, I'm joined by on the grounds geopolitical analyst, the author and historian, Professor Gerald Horn. Well, Gerald, since we spoke last, the tensions have ratcheted up quite a bit between the U.S., EU countries and Russia all over these yet unproven allegations that Russia poisoned a U.K.-Russia double agent. 
and there have been expulsions of Russian diplomats here in the U.S. and in Europe. So I'm wondering, is do you think this is just theater or some analysts fear that this is really upping the ante beyond the point of no return? It's very serious. It's ultra serious. Uh, it's a very dangerous period we've entered. Point number one, your listeners should know, is that it's really split Germany. That is to say that Germany only expelled four Russian diplomats, and even that was as a direct result of a lot of uh, argument within the ruling coalition headed by Chancellor Merkel. Secondly, it's striking to note that the United States expelled 60 diplomats, uh, more than many of the European nations combined, and it helps to expose and reveal either A, a certain incoherence in the policy of the Trump regime, that is to say, as any liberal can tell you, uh, Mr. Trump has a reputation for being rather soft on Vladimir Putin. But if you look at his actual policies, such as these expulsions, it's going in a different direction. So this is either A, a policy of incoherence, or B, he's playing a double game. That is to say, trying to fool Russia into thinking that Mr. Trump wants good relations with Moscow while he's pursuing a diametrically opposite course, whatever the case it's very dangerous, particularly in light of the fact that Russia, as you know, just announced the uh, development of new weapons, and this comes at a very inopportune moment for Washington. Well, on another note, uh, in some act of agency, the Congress just banned the sale of U.S. arms to a neo-Nazi-linked militia, the Azov Battalion in Ukraine. So a lot of Americans probably don't know that these sales were even possible. And I also should say that, you know, we haven't heard anything about this from the quote unquote resistance about these sales. Well, this is what I mean about either the incoherence of the double game of the Trump regime. On the one hand, once again, supposedly Mr. Trump is friendly to Vladimir Putin. But on the other hand, uh, as your report has suggested, the United States has not been above uh, consorting with neo-fascists who are killing Russian soldiers over the conflict concerning Crimea. It's a very dangerous period in which we have entered. Moving to Africa, you know, there have been a number of, well, I should say that with the demise of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Treaty here in U.S. that we discussed at length in the past, there are, are these other treaties being established around the world, including those involving Africa. So I want to get your take on these efforts and their significance. Well, just a few days ago in Kigali, Rwanda, 44 African governments met to develop a so-called African Continental Free Trade Agreement. Unfortunately, it does not include, as of yet, the two largest economies, speaking of Nigeria and South Africa. However, this is still a gigantic step forward in light of the massive amounts of Chinese capital that are pouring into Africa, which may ultimately lead to the development of rail links from east to west, from Mombasa to Dakar, Senegal, and from north to south, from Cape to Cairo and Cairo to Cape. Uh, this is a huge step forward with regard to the development of the African continent and may be some of the most significant news about Africa in recent years. And even though the effort doesn't include South Africa and Nigeria, 
is there a possibility that those countries might join in or? Well, absolutely. I mean, part of the problem in Nigeria was that certain stakeholders, such as the trade unions, felt that they had not been sufficiently consulted by the government, and that stayed the hand of the Abuja regime. And there were similar forces at play in South Africa. So presumably when consultations take place, Nigeria and South Africa will sign on. And certainly uh, they don't want to miss the train as it's leaving the station. That is to say, they want to be on board if this African Continental Free Trade Agreement actually gets off and running. Hmm. Well, finally, we want to alert our listeners in the D.C., Maryland and Virginia region, the DMV, we call it, that you'll actually be here at the end of April in support of your latest book. So why don't you give us that information? Well, first of all, I'll be having a public conversation with Paul Coates, the publisher of Black Classics Press, who did one of my latest books. And we'll be talking about the question of why black lives don't matter. It involves a radical reinterpretation of the history of the United States from the late 17th century forward, which, of course, is the subject of my book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism. That's going to be at the Real News headquarters in Baltimore on Wednesday, April 18th, and then at Sankofa Bookstore right across the street from Howard University on Saturday, April 21st at 3 p.m. I'm going to be discussing that book and a number of other books that have just dropped. Okay, well, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, Gerald will be with us next month in April. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, the author, historian, prolific author, I should say, and historian, Professor Gerald Horn. Thanks for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. And those are our headlines and happenings. Next, unheard voices in D.C. and New Mexico from the March for Our Lives. Stay with us.
I am marching for the cause-bound black girl who could not attend FAMU in the fall because she was struck by stray bullets. I am marching for my boyfriend who was murdered before he could even apply to FAMU. Okay. I am marching for a sophomore who was killed over his Nike Air Jordan while he played basketball in Southeast Washington. My city signs no more. Too many sons are gone. My name is Lauren and I have had enough. I'm Lauren Parkinson. Get out and vote this year. I'm from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, so it's just in the outskirts of the Philly metro area. Okay, so what has brought you all this way to D.C. today? I kind of, I remember writing down after Sandy Hook, like five and a half years ago, that I kind of felt numb. And that, I was, what, 12 or 14 at the time? And I just feel, yes, my mom, she drove me here. Um, and I felt like every single time it kept happening after Sandy Hook, I wouldn't even process it. I wouldn't even remember the name at that point. It's almost like you were reading it and it wasn't something that was happening to real people. It was like something happening in a book or and you kind of just pushed it out of your mind. And I felt like there's just kind of been no response for too long from our legislators. Um, and I felt that the NRA has been gradually taking uh, more and more steps against common sense gun control. And I feel like that needs to stop now. The CDC needs to be able to research firearm deaths um, and the hazards associated with firearms like they do for cars. Um, we need to improve background checks. I personally think that people should get background checks for guns through their local police stations so that they can have a certificate that they can give right at gun shows or gun sales to um, the seller so that there's accountability in the process and that there should be regular checkups um, to make sure that the firearms are operating properly and that there's a mandatory training period for our great, firearms. Great. So those sound like some very concrete demands. Heidi Bachman. Thank you. We are a group of teachers from Washington International School and we teach middle and high school students. Okay. And we know this is part of our lives and their lives and we are not willing to stop protesting and stop saying this is wrong. We need to have sensible gun control. We need to be safe in our schools and we need our students to feel safe coming to school. So we're here to make sure that we support the students of Parkland and every other student who's here today. So you all would not be a fan of being armed while you were in your class? No, only armed with love, books, critical thinking. Excellent. Hi, I'm Alexandra Nicolescu. And where do you come from? Cary, North Carolina. So what brings you to D.C.? Um, well, we want to protest and try to put into effect ways so that we, us students, aren't afraid to go to school. We're not, we're not constantly afraid whenever an alarm comes on or whenever the principal comes on the speaker saying that we're having a drill. Right, right, right. So do you feel like your voices are really being heard and are really going to be heard? Is that what you're expecting? Yeah, today we expect it to be a million people here. And I mean, and with a million people and even more who couldn't come today but are willing to help uh, and to do action against, to help this movement, I think uh, uh, the legislators and the Senate and the Senate people in the Senate will hear our words and they'll be able to see what we uh, can do with our voices. My name is Michelle. I'm from DC. So can you talk about your sign? 
Well, in America, it's easier for me just to take my parents' credit card, go online and check a box, and buy an AR-15 than it is to buy a beer. Wow, so how old are you? I'm 17. And I also came last Wednesday for the National Walkout. And I just don't want to be in school when it's dangerous. I'm supposed to be safe in school. And if I don't feel safe, how am I going to learn? We, we need to get the adults to listen to us. The government isn't doing a good job to protect the kids. They're protecting, they're choosing to protect the unborn kids rather than the born kids in the schools. Yeah. It, it needs to be changed. Out of the far too many youth of color murdered in these streets every day, how many of them got rallies of thousands of people? How many got a CNN town hall or raised millions of dollars in two days? Our kids are dying in these streets and they deserve justice. work does not end today. This is just the beginning. With a full 60-day legislative session nearly a year away, our campaign will continue to advocate for school safety, common sense gun laws, and a learning environment that is supportive of all students. We will include both civic engagement among high schoolers and voter registration because politicians in, uh, in New Mexico from both sides of the aisle have accepted money from the NRA. Between now and November 6, 2018, the day we elect a new governor and four congressional representatives, thousands, thousands of young New Mexicans will be granted the right to vote. And together, alongside the survivors of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, we will vote out any politician that continues to value NRA dollars over America's future. we are stepping up at a time when the adults in power seem to be failing us and as the future leaders of our state we suggest our leaders stop disregarding vo our voices and stop playing politics with our lives again thank you guys so so much for coming out and supporting us today let's give each and every one of our youth um, committee heads and everyone who helped us with this a round of applause again please honor to present uh, one of our youth activists and today's MC, Daniel Indebongo. How's it going everybody? How's it feel to be here today? Alright, so we have a really exciting lineup of different speakers that we are planning on presenting to you guys. Thank you all, firstly, for coming here today. The first person that I want that we want to present to you, his name is Machpia Black Elk. He's going to be doing a blessing for us today. So how about those young people?
Yo soy Lakota y Chicano, soy de la comunidad de los Duranes. And good afternoon, my relatives. My name is Mahdia Black Elk. Um, I am from here in Albuquerque, born and raised from a community called Los Duranes. And on my father's side, I'm from the Pine Ridge Reservation of uh, South Dakota. And currently I work at the Native American Community Academy just down the road here at the Old Indian School Campus. When I was asked to come in and give the opening blessing today, I was trying to reflect on what it means uh, to, for us to be here and why we're here. And not a lot of people know, but the old Indian school campus here was designed to kill the Indian and save the man. That's right. And what a lot of people don't know as well is that the park down the street from the Indian school campus lies a marker, a grave marker for all the children who passed away while their time at the Indian school campus. And so I reflected on what it means to go to school and not come home. What it means for a child to be sent off to a place where they think they're going to be safe and they come back and they're not. And so today I pray for all of those who have gone to school and never made it home. Today we pray for all of the parents who've sent their kids off and never welcomed back home. We pray for the families who are impacted by the loss of their loved ones, of their little ones. We pray for the communities that have lost the leaders to this nonsense and this violence. And so today we pray for guidance to go forward in a good way, to lead with our hearts so that our leaders may hear us and the decision makers may hear us. And we pray for our youth that we protect them and keep them safe and they may bring the generation safer next. And so today we pray for all the young people who are here, all the young people in the crowd who are gonna go register and vote and make a difference. And we pray to have a society where with or without guns, we treat each other with respect. And thank all of you who came here, all of your relations, everyone who supports you to get here. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mr. Parkhoff. So basically, next we have um, some people from Moms Demand Action. Um, their names are Robin Bruce and Maggie Byers. Please welcome them to the stage. Hello, everybody. My name is Robin Brule. I'm deeply honored to be here and be part of this rally. I'm actually a survivor of gun violence. On February 8, 2016, my mother and her friend were shot and murdered while reading the morning paper and drinking coffee by three assailants who wanted their credit cards. This will never be easy for my family and it will never ever make sense. There are days when it seems that the earth has shattered and that time has stopped. But what also makes no sense is that our country continues to suffer from mass shootings and daily gun violence that takes the lives of more than 90 Americans every day and leaves hundreds more injured. How are we letting this happen? On February 14th in Parkland, Florida, 17 innocent souls were gunned down. More families left devastated in the wake of this tragic, senseless, and preventable violence. Yes, preventable violence. I know what these families are going 
going through, shock, heartbreak, and then anger, lives taken and lives forever changed. We cannot sit by and let this become the new normal. It's time to disarm hate, complacency, and indifference. We cannot be numb. My mother was a teacher all of her life, 30 years at APS. First she taught fifth grade for years and then she volunteered in special needs classrooms. She loved her students and they loved her. That same sort of love you saw in action as teachers in Parkland put themselves between danger and their students without regard for their own lives. This is not acceptable. In what feels like an endless blaze of news stories, we see the same images over and over and over of students filling out, filing out of buildings with their hands up, a parent, a child hugging as they both cry and those who cannot find any words but sit silently as tears stream down their face. We have heard and seen the images so many times that most are numb from this devastating pain that it represents. This numbness has become in action by our political leaders and it must change. law that would allow family members and law enforcement to seek extreme risk protection, which would temporarily restrict a person's access to a gun when they pose a danger to themselves or others. We must also work to close the loopholes that allow so many who are not supposed to have a gun get a gun. To these brave, brave students, I applaud your courage today to make your voice heard. You are demanding action and accountability from our elected officials. Keep it up every single day until they make the change we need. just tuning in this is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance and alternative news from the nation's capital i'm esther Everam, and joining me for this month's extended focus on media and culture is media critic janine jackson host of the nationally syndicated show counterspin welcome back to the show janine i'm happy to be here esther well, this is actually our first segment for 2018. Lots has happened. We're already three months into the year with a quarter of the year already in the books or in our news feeds or however information is stored these days. And at this point, I must admit, I'm pretty much given up on Western corporate media, <laughs> but I'll get to that later. So you first, what in the world of news and media do you want to highlight? Well, right now, I am thinking about a couple of anniversaries 
You know, one of them is that we've just passed the 50-year anniversary of the Kerner Report, which was this 1968 report that took on basically the unrest, the civil unrest that had happened the previous year in cities all around the country, but a piece of it was about media, and it was really calling out U.S. uh, corporate media for their portrayals of black people and also for their failure to really represent black people in terms of hiring as well. We also had the 15-year anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, of course, and both of these anniversaries are really making me think about lessons unlearned. Kerner was quite prescient in saying that the way media cover black people has a lot to do with the way black and white people interact in this country. It has a lot to do with the policies that are enacted that affect African Americans, and it's a distorted view. But it wasn't really understood. I think when a lot of people talk about Kerner, they think, oh yeah, Kerner said that they should hire more black journalists. And the report did say that. But they didn't say it because, you know, that'd be a nice thing to do. You know, it was actually much harder hitting than that. It said that media in the U.S. report and write from the standpoint of a white man's world. Mm. And that coverage reflects the biases, the paternalism, the indifference of white America. And that that was not excusable in an institution that has the mission to inform and educate the whole of our society. So it wasn't that diversity is nice. It was that we have to decenter the white male view in order to actually be doing legitimate journalism that serves its societal function. That's much more dramatic. That's much more radical than I think got taken away from it, you know. And one of the, a lot of good did come out of Kerner, and a lot of the hiring was super important. I'm thinking first and foremost right now of Les Payne, um, who has just passed away, longtime Newsday columnist and real veteran journalist who got a job after the war. He'd been, I think, doing some reporting as a veteran, but he got hired after Kerner. You know, he definitely in the wake of Kerner. He called Kerner the, the, you know, an affirmative action program, which it was in many ways. But then that hiring of folks like Les Payne flagged. Now we're back at a situation where the numbers aren't much better. And to bring it back to you're saying you're giving up on media, what I want to pull together is the reason you can't get that many journalists of color to go into mainstream journalism and stay there is because journalism never really grappled with Kerner's real demand, which was that they decenter their white male view. It's so important what you're saying. I realized that I was like maybe the second or third wave after that movement, being in college, coming out of college in the 80s and majoring in journalism and really wanting to go into journalism and basically seeing that, I guess, the peak of the impact from the Kerner Report and then the everything going downhill after that. And, and I think it was pretty much spurred along when newspapers fell on hard times. So one of the first casualties of that shakeout was that so many black journalists either left the field or lost their jobs, not being valued precisely because of what you're talking about, because often our voices weren't in line with that white male voice. 
and what they wanted to say. I mean, I often tell the story about wanting to doing this long piece on Paul Robeson for the Washington Post and having the editor at Style at that time say to say to me, well, no, you have to, you know, basically write that, you know, Paul Robeson wound up on the wrong side of history. That that had to be the the nut graph, basically, right. and so I feel very much a part of that sweep of history on the on the latter end, leading up to today, and uh, scrapping together you know shows for a community media that we're distributing around the country on our own, and that's where we've come. So many black journalists who are still trying have come to, or they're just not doing journalism at all. That's exactly right. There was a real almost push out of people of color from journalism that did coincide with the concentration and the layoffs generally. But what it showed was that, just as you just said, was that the contribution of those journalists was not valued in the way that it ought to have been. Diversity was seen as a... um, a sprinkle, you know, a nicety, a, a thing that if you can afford it, sure, you know, sure, have some diversity. But if things get tough, then you got to cut back and diversity is what you're going to lose. And that's why I wrote a piece and there was a kind of an ad hoc group of us who decided to write things around the Kerner anniversary. And I wrote a piece that wound up on color lines in which I talk about, you know, just what I've just been talking about with you. Um, but it's about the difference also between thinking about diversity and thinking about real racial justice. Diversity, as soon as times get tough, you can toss it out the window. Justice is a core value. And I think what is misunderstood about Kerner is that it really was calling for a fundamental change in the way media approach um, people of color and the way media include people of color. And that never really got taken as seriously as it should have. Yeah, yeah. And diversity of voices and perspectives is is not just just you can't just add one black person to the newsroom and keep doing the same old news. Yeah, yeah. Or or add a black person who, you know, will just agree with you, locks stock and barrel who will just keep to have either to keep their job or because maybe that's just really what they believe in terms of how they've been raised so you're not really adding a diversity of voices you're just adding another another you know but uh okay but you were going to go on to the iraq war well just to say speaking of anniversaries and and lessons unlearned we've just passed the 15 year anniversary of the u.s invasion of iraq and what are we seeing we're seeing a person who's been involved in in torture being promoted to the head of the CIA. You know, we're seeing things kind of moving full steam in the the direction that they were headed then. In other words, more war, military response to everything, not requiring careful examination of intelligence. You know, it just sort of feels like it's shocking how how similar things feel today, you know, that that we're seeing torturers being promoted and that we're seeing on so-called liberal networks like MSNBC, we're seeing the parade of generals that we saw back then, you know, but just because they maybe are critical of Trump, now supposedly we're supposed to look at them as as bastions of of freedom and democracy, you know, it's it's appalling. Exactly. um, It's it's really uh, shocking to see how far 
we haven't come, you know. And when and media didn't actually, corporate media didn't talk a tremendous amount about this 15-year anniversary. You know, there were certainly some stories, but there wasn't the kind of thing where, you know, let's really dig it up and talk about what went wrong and what a disaster it was and how it still is a disaster, still is impacting people's lives. You didn't really see that, and I have to believe that that has something to do with corporate media's continued resistance to examining their own uh, participation in leading us into that invasion and that war. Yeah, what you're saying actually kind of dovetails right into my first point, which is the same one. Because when I look at this uh, script, which seems feels to me looks to me like a very tired script, the same tired script to uh, beat the drum, um, build animosity toward Russia. Uh, There's a this this case in the UK of this double agent who was sickened by a poison and his daughter was also sickened and uh, without any evidence being shown without any uh, evidence or proof being shown or the investigation being completed Russia now is being targeted for expulsion of diplomats from the US and EU countries the we had recently cases in Syria where the Assad government was charged with chemical attacks but no no proof was given and so all these incidents remind me very much of what I heard in the run up to the Iraq war and I find it more than disturbing that the media, which also was led along by the government and, and, you know, reported out these, uh, well, didn't report out these kinds of claims before the Iraq war. They're doing the same thing now. I mean, I can't turn on the TV without allegations being reported as facts or being stated as facts. And that's, that's very, is very dangerous. And here in DC, I just noticed that the Russia media RT as well as all the other international media outlets that were on some of the more of the public access channels, they're all being taken off Verizon now. And so after April 1st, I won't be able to see RT on Verizon or see the China channel, the, the, the channel from Turkey, the channel from China. You know, it was valuable for me to see news from other places and to see perspectives from other places. I didn't have to agree with it, but it was valuable. It was even valuable to see scenes in other countries. Like I seldom see what a street in China looks like <laughs> or what, what a city, what a city street in China looks like, what a, what a, a street in a town or a, a village looks like in China or in Africa, for, ex- for example, even though I had a lot of problems with the French channel in terms of their, I think they had a lot of Western bias, but they often covered Africa far more than any, any American U.S. media covers Africa. And I would see just basic scenes. Also, uh, China covered Africa a lot. And I would just hear interviews with just everyday people, not involved in a conflict, not involved in a war, not starving, you know, not that that, that coverage isn't important, but I wouldn't, this, this allowed me to see more of the world. And I'm now I'm going to be cut off from that. I'll have to go to social media or to online where so many millennials are going actually who don't even plug into cable anyway. So 
I'm kind of joining the joining millennials. <laughs> it, it seems, yes, they've all cut the cord, it seems, long ago and don't even know what we're talking about when we say, did you see that on television or did you, you know, they, <laughs> that's not how they receive it anymore. You know, well, but I mean, I, I, it's absolutely an absurd direction to be going in to be closing off our perspectives and our ability to get more information about different places around the world. As you say, when you watch a television network, you don't agree with everything you see. Of course you don't, you know. Um, sometimes you don't even necessarily know who the, the experts are or the actors are who's speaking, but it does reveal places of the world that you might not see otherwise, you know, and it does bring you stories and people and perspectives perspectives that you might not get. And I think we're just recognizing more and more that we have to inform ourselves independently as citizens. We're not looking for the government to say, here's one channel that we have pre-approved for you and we've made sure that all of the information is going to be safely pro-American and nothing that's going to, you know, that's not the direction that the world is moving in. That's a real throwback. Uh, Well, and I definitely can't tune in and see, you know, every former CIA head, you know, being interviewed, you know, people who lied to Congress, (laughs) people who, you know, have a record of lying to us, you know, lied about Iraq. And then now I'm supposed to believe that they're telling the truth. Yeah, you never seem to, being a pundit seems to me never having to say you're sorry, you know, and as my colleague Steve Rendell put it, you know, when it comes to the Iraq war, apparently we were right, we who protested the war were right, but for the wrong reasons. You know, and the people who were wrong about it, they were wrong, but for the right reasons. You know, this is what we're given to believe, you know, and it just shows. And as a media critic, this is what stays with me, is that we are still hearing from the same voices. They are still the voices in our head. They are still the voices that are taking up the airtime, that we're still hearing from those same people who said something wrong and then walked it back, who said something and then lied, who said something thing and then reversed it, you know, and as right. you say, we're, we're expected to, not only are we expected to take them seriously again, but we're again being prevented from hearing from all of that whole world of other voices who could, who first of all were not wrong, who were regional experts, who were historical experts, who were di- diplomatic experts, you know, who could actually fill in the information that was being distorted, we're still not hearing from them, you know. Exactly. So it really is, um, it's, I think it's not just a lesson that media did not learn. It's, to me, a lesson media don't want to learn. You know, I, uh, I work with less pain. And I, uh, so my career tra- trajectory is that I started at the Wilmington News Journal. Uh, well, I was at um, grad school at Columbia, New York. And then I went to Wilmington, Delaware, to get my first kind of, you know, job out of school. Then I went back to New York and I was at the New York Times for a while um, as a news assistant, then as a reporter. Then I went to New York Newsday and Les Payne is one of the people who was a mentor and a friend and a hero to a lot of us. We were like part of his flock, you know, (laughs) and it was so 
wonderful, I guess, to have someone in the newsroom, in the news business like that, who we knew would almost like look out for us in a way, (laughs) because the business was very treacherous then, even though there was more, more opportunity, it was still treacherous. And you still had to deal with newsrooms that weren't always, um, uh, open to new ideas and new people. So I definitely wanted to mention that before we we talked about um, culture and and just talk about the importance of having um, a voice and like his, he was pretty unwavering in being able to tell the truth and speak for those who didn't have a voice. He never forgot his reason for being there. Right. That's an inspiration and it shows how important it is to have a mentor to have someone who who looks like you and cares about things you care about to be there on the job and, and help you. Mm-hmm. So we may have a few lighter notes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Of course, we have to mention that the movie that we keep talking about, Get Out, won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay since we last talked. That's right. That's fantastic. And Black Panther, which... I don't know about where you are, but here where I am, it's been like talked out on the airwaves. <laughs> but, you know, discussions, you know, debates are still happening in the community. I saw one listing for a, a discussion at the University of Maryland uh, just this week. And it's I think it's past a billion dollars. I was going to say it's still making money. It's still breaking records um, as a just as a movie, just as a successful movie. Right. Yes. And then two things. I recently started watching the Jimmy Dorn show on YouTube. And if you haven't checked it out, you might want to check it out. He's like an anecdote for like MSNBC. I mean, he's the first person I saw on the show really analyze and take apart what Rachel Maddow is doing and that fast talking thing she does, you know, and um, really take apart like, like what she's doing in terms of this obsession with Russiagate. And then the other night uh, I saw, and I should have her name in front of me, but a representative, either Georgia or Florida, being interviewed by Ed Schultz on RT. And he asked this this black woman whether she thought Melania cared about all these revelations about Stormy Daniels (laughs) and everything. She said, no, I don't think that Melania cares. She said she's what the third wife and she knows that, you know, Donald Trump stepped out on the other two wives and, you know, she was pregnant at the time. And I think that she just thought that, you know, they were doing her a favor by keeping him off her back. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And this is what we have to do for political commentary. Now, nowadays, you know, because this is where we're at, you know. This is where we're at. This was, this is where we are. Yes. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, you know, about Black Panther, one thing I, I it does uh there's a whole book now about it um, that I may, you know, Todd Burroughs has a, has edited a new book of, I think of essays about people yeah. who take, taking it um, seriously, you know, not just looking at it as a film, but trying to look at the phenomenon. Why is it meaning so much to African-Americans? But, you know, Esther, a funny thing was that when I think about kind of the, 
dialectic, if you will, in Black Panther, the different approaches to black struggle struggle that the film is kind of talking about, it reminded me of um, a documentary that I had seen on PBS. It was by Independent Lens, and it was called Tell Them We Are Rising, about historically black colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's about... Stanley Nelson, right? I'm sorry? Is that Stanley Nelson? I think it is Stanley Nelson, Mm -hmm, yes. mm -hmm. Uh, And that, um, you know, you think, okay, HBCUs, but then it actually turns out to be really a kind of conversation about Booker T. Washington versus W.B. Du Bois and their differing ideas about African Americans finding their place in this country. And it was, I found myself thinking about Black Panther at the time because it was, you know, you could certainly take a side, you would certainly have feelings about it, but it really was about a kind of political argument and a back and forth, and it was a, a richer and multi, more multifaceted aspect of black life than we almost ever get in culture or news media here in this country. And I think that's part of what people love about Black Panther is everybody's black, you know? It's not like there's the black guy, you know, and is he the hero or the villain? And is he going to die before the film is over? Exactly. Is he going to sing a blues song and then die, you know? <laughs> you know? Um, and in Black Panther, it's all us. You know, we're playing all the roles, and I think that's part of what is so people are so thirsty for and so gratified by. Yeah. Well, you know, it certainly has its... Uh, critics and I guess I'm probably one of them but I do I do take what you say very seriously and I I do understand the attraction of it and and just the high points you know just the the eye what I call the eye candy of it and we we all need our candy right (laughs) right absolutely it's just fun that's the other thing is it's just fun you know and um I have issues with it and I like the conversations that it's uh that it's starting I think they're interesting conversations well I must say I enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, I've been speaking with media critic Janine Jackson, host of the nationally syndicated show Counterspin. Thank you for joining me today, Janine. It's a pleasure, Esther. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank Gerald Horn, Janine Jackson, Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and Michelle Roberts for their contributions to the show. The music we play this hour included Rain Dance by Nana Vasconcelos and the Bush Dancers, Virtual Insanity by Jamiroquai, and by the Either Orchestra, Keset Eswabecha. Our theme is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. Thank you for tuning in. And hey, watch out for anyone trying to gaslight you. Big up to the students who march, to all the people marching in Sacramento to my critical thinkers, to those who read history. You have a right to believe your eyes and ears. Trust your memory, perception, and sanity. To everybody listening, keep raising your voice. Peace.